Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So here's the one thing that we ought to be about as a congregation. This message, this good news of Christ and Him crucified. But how do we recognize and determine whether a congregation truly believes in this message? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that Christians, those who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, can be recognized by their visible demonstration of Christ-like love towards each other. Those that trust in the message of Christ and Him crucified walk in the way of love. So turn with me this evening in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, and we will look at the text beginning from there all the way to the end of chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 31 to chapter 13, verse 13. Let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray together. Father, help us now to see the glory of your love that you have shown us in the cross of our Savior. And in the light of that love, pure and divine, may we come to see in our hearts every kind of disordered love, every sinful love that keeps us from abiding in the love of Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that you would change us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Change us to walk in love just as Christ did. And may your steadfast love be perfected in us that we may know that we are in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. If you were to ask a random person on the street if love was a good thing, they would probably agree with you. The world needs more love, they might say. But if you press on them a bit and ask a few clarifying questions, you might come to realize that their definition of love is very different from yours. By the way, this is a great conversation, a great conversation starter if you're engaging university students on campus. Just ask them, what is love? What does love mean to you? And after hearing them out, ask them, well, do you know that the Bible has a very different definition of love? Would you like to know how Christians define love? Friends, this may or may not be surprising to you, but the world does not have a consensus on what love is. So here's a sampling on what some would say about love. Love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Love is when you sit beside someone doing nothing, yet you feel perfectly happy. Love is composed of a single soul inhabiting two bodies. Love is temporary insanity, curable by marriage. Love is being stupid together. The greatest of all is a mother's love. And this one's my favorite. Love is a lot like a backache. It doesn't show up on x-rays, but you know it's there. Please don't ask me what that means. You know, the one thing that all these sayings have in common is that they're all false and godless. They're not good, definitely not great, and certainly not the greatest. 
But when Paul talks about love, he describes it as extraordinary. 1 Corinthians 12, 32, I will show you a still more excellent way. The word that is translated as more excellent, hooperbolin, is where we get the word hyperbole from. This is way beyond comparison. And that is because love for Paul is defined by the word of the cross. It is the kindness and compassion of God that he demonstrates towards judgment-deserving sinners by sending his son to save them from his wrath and from the power of sin. But God's love has done much more than that. He has not only forgiven us of our sins and set us free from the power of sin, he has also made us spiritually alive. And he has done this by uniting us to Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. We now have communion with the triune God and he pours out his love into our new hearts through the Holy Spirit who now dwells with us. God has made his home with us, so to speak. And so if you have the Holy Spirit, you are a spiritual person. You are no longer a natural person. And if you are a spiritual person, then your life ought to be marked by Christ like love. It is the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Belief or faith in the message of Christ and Him crucified manifests itself in love. Love that the Spirit of Christ Himself produces. But when you take that faith and put it somewhere else, when you put your trust in the values of the world, in what the world sees as excellent, then such faith results in the fruit of a different kind results in the fruit of worldly wisdom or cultural wisdom. This is what happened at Corinth. There was jealousy and strife and division. Since Corinthian culture put such a high premium on speaking abilities, certain members at the church of Corinth began to boast in the more prominent, the more visible speaking gifts or word gifts of the Spirit. Those who had the gift of knowledge and tongues and prophecy began to feel superior to those who had the less showy gifts. And they thought that only those who had received the more visible speaking gifts were the ones who were truly important. They were the spiritual ones, they thought. But Paul corrects their worldly thinking by telling them that they had no reason, absolutely no reason to boast in their gifts. It was God the Holy Spirit himself who had given them a variety of grace gifts so that they would build one another up in love. God was the one who, in His sovereign wisdom, had decided which member would receive a more visible gift and which member would receive a less visible gift. And He intends for us to see those differences so that we can work together to minister to one another, so that we may have the same care for one another. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, look at verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, as I said two weeks ago, there's two ways to read this text, depending on whether we see this verb, earnestly desire, as an indicative, as a statement of fact, or as an imperative, as a command. If you have an old NIV Bible, you'll see that the translators will give you a footnote with both readings. If you take it as a statement of fact, then we must see this as an indirect rebuke. So at the end of his argument, after instructing the Corinthians not to exalt one gift over the other, he says, do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But you all earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So the argument goes like this. He rebukes them for what they were doing, pursuing what they felt were the higher gifts based on their cultural understanding of what was greater. And then he proceeds to show them the way of love. This is what they ought to pursue. Certainly they must desire spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1. But if they are driven by a Christ-like love, if they are motivated by love, 
then they will desire the gift that is not most showy, but most edifying, like prophecy. On the other hand, if you take earnestly desire the higher gifts to be a command, then the argument goes like this. The command to desire higher gifts is given in preparation to instruct the Corinthians why he considers prophecy to be a greater or higher gift than tongues. Higher not in cultural terms, but higher in terms of what would be most useful in building up the church, hence more loving. But before he does that, he needs to help them understand what is love. He needs to show them the more excellent way of love, for without love as their motivation, they will not be able to understand why prophecy is better or higher. Friends, the excellent way that Paul is talking about is a way. Did you see that in the text? It is a way. You could say that it is a way of living. He addresses the problem by showing them the right way. And this is consistent with how Paul has previously dealt with faulty understanding of certain gifts. You remember the gift of knowledge in chapter 8? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The problem was not with the gift of knowledge, but by the way it was being used. It was being used in an unloving way. People were fighting for their rights. They were boasting. They were participating in idolatry. Beloved, this is not the way of the cross. The pathway of the cross is the way of love. Self-denying, self-sacrificial, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, holy love. Now, irrespective of how you read verse 31 of chapter 12, Paul is going to show us how to rightly think about these gifts. Don't chase after them for personal glory, he says, but desire them so that you can build up one another in love. That's where he's heading. He's heading to chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love. A spiritual person is not one who is marked by gifts, but marked by love. And so to help us understand this, Paul teaches us three important lessons about Christian love. Three important lessons about Christian love so that we can use our spiritual gifts well for its God-intended purposes. Lesson number one, the necessity of love. The necessity of love. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says, I want you to think about how you're using your gifts. I know you're thinking about your gifts in a particular way, and all you're thinking about is yourself, your status, your importance in the body, but here's why that way of thinking is flawed. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, Paul starts with the gift of tongues because this was the gift that they were most fascinated with. If you remember, the gift of tongues was the supernatural ability to communicate God's infallible revelation to the congregation in a language that was unknown and previously unlearned by the speaker and sometimes foreign to those who heard it, which is why God gave another gift, the gift of interpretation of tongues. Notice how these gifts need each other. He gave them the gift of interpretation of tongues, where either the speaker himself or herself or someone else in the congregation would be able to supernaturally interpret what was spoken so that the church could understand the Word of God and be edified by the Word of God. Now we know that Paul is building up an argument here. He's raising a possibility, a hypothetical situation, in order to make a point. We know he's doing that because in chapter 14, verse 18, he says he has the gift of tongues. So there's no reason for him to say, if I have the gift of tongues, this, is, this if is for the sake of argument. If I have the tongues of men, supernaturally speaking in human languages, unknown to the speaker, or in the tongue of angels, 
Again, this doesn't mean that there were some who were actually speaking in some sort of angelic dialect. Maybe there were some who believed so, but Paul's making an argument. This is for the sake of intensifying the idea. This is Paul's way of saying, you like impressive gifts? Well, guess what? It doesn't matter if you have the most impressive gift, like speaking in the language of angels. If I do that, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you use this gift in an unloving way, without love, you're just a noisy person. It's not the gift that's, that's the problem. It's the person. If you say, look at me. I have the gift of tongues. You're showing off, aren't you? You have no desire to interpret it or to have someone interpret it so that people can understand what God is saying to the congregation. If that is you, then you have missed the point of that spiritual gift, says Paul. The point is to build the church in love. Oh, but can't, can't you see how spiritual I sound? Well, actually, you sound like someone dropped a frying pan in the kitchen. That's how you sound. Oh, but this is about the Holy Spirit working in me. Yeah, well, the Holy Spirit also wrote 1 Corinthians 13. So if you want to honor the Holy Spirit, then listen to everything he says. Look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers... If I have the gift of prophecy, that's what it means, the ability to supernaturally declare God's infallible word and understand all mysteries, again, hyperbole here. The word mysteries in the New Testament means something that was previously hidden, but now made known. If I had all knowledge, another gift. And if I have all faith, another gift. Faith so as to re remove mountains, this is the gift of Miracle working faith described in 1 Corinthians 12, 9. The faith to move mountain was a well-known turn of phrase that meant achieving something impossible in a miraculous way. If I could do all of that, but have not love, I am nothing. Now when Paul says, but have not love, he means to act in a way that is unloving. Brothers and sisters, the true test of prophecy and the gift of faith and the gift of knowledge, all these wonderful gifts that the Spirit had given the Corinthian congregation, the true test of these gifts was love. Paul is talking about people here. He's not talking about love as some abstract idea. He's addressing people who are not acting in love as they use their gifts. And that is something that we must remember as we read this passage. Very often this passage is read out of context. Often read at weddings, for example, to describe what love between a husband and a wife ought to look like. Now there's nothing wrong in doing that. That's a perfectly good way to apply this text. But the purpose for which Paul wrote this text was to instruct the Corinthians how to live in such a way so that they could use their God-given gifts to build each other up. And they were not using their gifts in a loving way. If you're not exercising your gifts in a loving way, you are nothing, says Paul. Imagine that. Now that would have shocked these puffed-up Corinthians to hear that love had eschatological significance. Without love before God on that last day, this is the verdict. You're nothing. But that should not surprise us, should it? Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So you can say, I'm a Christian. You can say, Jesus is Lord. You can say, I have the Spirit. But Jesus says that the test of a true confession of faith is obedience to the Word. But what about the gifts? Aren't they proof of the Spirit? Well, let's see what Jesus says. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So you can have gifts, but be eternally condemned on the last day. Beloved, Satan can work false signs and wonders too. People can work themselves up into an emotional frenzy and euphoria and voice out all kinds of random syllables and think that they're speaking in tongues. It's possible. But if obedience is the key, according to Jesus, then what does that have to do with love? Why does Paul make love the identity marker of the Christian? Well, John answers that for us in John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Did you hear that? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, you will do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It is the love of God poured out into our hearts by the Spirit that fuels our obedience. This is why love counts. John 14, 23 to 24. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Love, obedience, and fellowship with God through the Spirit all go hand in hand. Conversely, we are told in John 14, 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If you're struggling to obey the Lord's commands, that's a good question to ask yourself. Do I really love the Lord? Has my love for Jesus grown cold? Or take 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That means they'll be damned on the last day. Without love, you are nothing. But there is a way that this love for Christ is made visible and demonstrated as true in the life of a Christian. And that is through our love for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 4, 19 to 21. We love because He first loved us. So God's love for us in Christ is the fountainhead of our love for one another. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Those things go together. Not only is our love for one another evidence of our love for God, but it's also a test for our obedience. This is John's logic in 1 John 4, 7-11. It's our call to worship. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, made known among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This love is life-giving. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearer for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, meaning if this is the way that He loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved, this is why without love before God, you will amount to nothing. Nothing. The church at Corinth was not lacking in spiritual gifts. We know that from 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7. And yet, according to Paul, the blood-bought new covenant community of the Spirit is marked by love. A love that reflects not the power of our Savior, but the very character of our Savior. 
Look at verse 3. If I give away all I have, well, that sounds very generous. If I give away all I have, maybe this is someone who has the gift of giving, helps, showing mercy. Surely that ought to count for something, giving away all your possessions. What a sacrifice. But wait, Paul takes it up a few notches. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, this could refer to martyrdom or laying down your life for another. If I do that but have not love, zero benefit, I gain nothing. You gain nothing before God on the last day. You can do all of that. Just imagine. You can do all of that without genuine Christian love. Friends, there will be many generous people and many war heroes in hell because they were not animated by the saving love of Jesus Christ to do those things. What motivates you? What motivates you as you serve the body with your gifts? As you teach, as you serve, as you give, as you exhort, as you lead, as you help, as you show mercy? Are you driven by a love for Jesus that overflows and spurs you on to love others and build them up with your gifts? Or are you driven by a love for self-glory and self-importance? What went through your mind as you dropped your money in the offering bag just a few minutes ago? What motivated you? Are you filled with a zeal to build up others in love? Or are you consumed with a passion for yourself? Friends, Christian love is necessary because the cross is necessary. And that is the only thing that counts. Galatians 5, 6, 4, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And what does this love look like? Well, that brings us to the second lesson Paul teaches us. Lesson number two, the characteristics of love. Look at verse 4. And we'll look at these characteristics one by one. Love is patient. Some versions will say love is long-suffering, and that's a good way to describe patience. A willingness to suffer long. To wait without complaining. If you remember, this is what the Corinthians had failed to do at the Lord's Supper. They did not wait for one another. Patience is a willingness to put up with, to bear up with a weak brother or sister, to be mindful as you teach and exhort and counsel that there are people at different milestones in their spiritual growth and understanding. Patience requires us to be slow to speak, slow to make judgments until we have all the facts. Love is patient. Think about how the Lord has been patient with you this past week. Even as you have failed to love Him. Even as you have sinned. Hasn't the Lord been lovingly patient towards you? He's patient with our sanctification, isn't He? Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 Pastors ought to be patient too. The Lord's servant must patiently endure evil and opposition. 1 Timothy 2.24 Brothers, love is patient. Can you be patient with your brothers and sisters? Especially those who get on your nerves in peculiar ways. Remember, we are called to 
build up one another in love as we exercise our gifts. Your exhortation will sound like a loud car horn if you're not patient to listen first before you speak. Perhaps you have the gift of evangelism and you're better at this than others. Are you patient while doing it? Some of you may need to take the long view when it comes to evangelism. The Lord may not choose to bring someone to faith in a few conversations, but in a few years. You may not be around to see the fruit of, our, of your labors, but if you are patient, you will have loved them well. Love is kind, says Paul. It is merciful and compassionate. And it reflects the very character of God and His loving kindness to us in Christ. Beloved, when we are kind, we demonstrate to one another that we understand. We understand that we ourselves have been recipients of God's mercy. Brothers, the heart of the gospel, the message of Christ and Him crucified is that God has extended kindness to those who are hostile towards Him. Isn't that the gospel? This is what God says to us in His Word, that He is our Creator, and out of the overflow of His goodness and love, He created us for His own glory and purpose, and we have rejected His goodness and love by turning to our own ways and our own ideas of goodness and love. This turning away from God to our own ideas is what the Bible calls self-centeredness and sin and rebellion for which we all stand condemned outside of Christ. But the message of the gospel is that despite our sin and rebellion, God has acted in kindness towards us. He has acted in kindness by sending His Son to die in the place of sinners. Titus 3 Verses 4 and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Kindness, divine kindness, took on a body and saved us. Friends, God's loving kindness saves us. And if you don't know Jesus you too can know and experience His loving kindness if you turn away from your sin and put your trust in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that the very fact that you're here and you're listening to these words by the providence of God is evidence of His kindness to you. He has brought you here to hear of His saving love. Repent and put your trust in Christ. Children, in God's providence, if God has placed you in believing families, that is His kindness to you. Repent and put your trust in Christ. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Don't reject His kindness. Beloved, God's love is kind. And by the power of His Spirit, He transforms us into men and women who are called to be kind to one another. Godly women, for example, in Titus 2 are called to be kind to their husbands so that the Word of God would not be reviled. This is how wives ought to love their husbands. Because love is kind. If you have the gift of leading, and you're up here often, do you lead with kindness? Do you speak kind words? Or are you harsh towards others? Would those who know you well describe you as a kind man or a kind woman? Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers, a lack of kindness is a dangerous symptom. Job 6.14, he who withholds Kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Now, if patience and kindness sum up what love is, Paul then goes on to teach us what love is not. Love does not envy, says Paul. A loving member is not jealous of another person's spiritual gift. But he delights in God's wisdom for the gifts that God has given him or her. And this was the problem at Corinth, wasn't it? 
people underestimated their gifts and under all their feelings of uselessness and oh I don't belong to the body because I'm not an eye was the simmering discontentment and coveting after the spiritual gifts that they did not have. Love does not boast. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of one who became a lowly servant does not brag. A loving disciple of Jesus Christ does not draw attention to himself. He doesn't parade around like a peacock saying, look at me. She does not flaunt her gifts. She doesn't say, can't you see how much I'm doing for my church? Love is not arrogant. It is not puffed up, in other words. There's no conceit in love. Love seeks unity and reconciliation and does not cause division over worldly values. But the opposite was happening at Corinth. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.2 about how members were arrogant about their tolerance of sin. Beloved, love is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, love is holy. Love is opposed to all that is unholy. Love mourns over sin and flees from sin and idolatry. Verse 5, love is not rude. It does not act inappropriately, unbecomingly. It does not act in shameful ways, like some women were, refusing to cover their heads while prophesying. Love does not seek to dishonor others. Loving wives do not disrespect their husbands. Single women, if a young man says he loves you and then tells you that he wants to make out with you, behave inappropriately, that's not love. That's shameful and dishonoring. If you're acting in a way that is abusive, impolite, vulgar, inconsiderate, impolite or pl or just plain bad-mannered you're not being loving by the way if you wanted to do a spiritual health checkup on yourself and see how you're doing spiritually as a christian how you're doing as a member of this congregation how you're doing in your relationships with with other believers at this church just walk through this text with someone examine yourself how you're doing spiritually see how you're doing with regard to all these qualities Ask someone to point out areas of lack in your life. And then ask the Lord for grace to help you grow in love. Love does not insist on its own way. This is what was going on in chapters 8 to 10. People insisting on their right to eat what they wanted, with who they wanted, and where they wanted. They were self-seeking. Beloved, this is the counterfeit love that the world espouses. It's a godless love that seeks its own way, its own identity, its own desires, its own satisfaction. It is a love that the world admires and wants more of. But the love that is produced by the Spirit is a love that denies itself for the spiritual good of the other. This is Christ-like love. This is the tongue speaker in chapter 14 who sees that there is no interpreter, so he stays silent. This is the one who gives of his time and energy in order to serve others and does so in a way that is most helpful to his brother or sister. The loving disciple does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counts others more significant than himself. She does not look only to her own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3-4. Friends, if patience and kindness reflect God's own steadfast love and mercy, then it's entirely fitting, it is entirely fitting that love is not irritable. If love is not irritable, it is not easily provoked. It is slow to anger. It is slow to anger. Much like the triune God we worship and into whose image we are being changed into, Christians should be people who are not easily offended. 
You know, sometimes people get offended by the truth even when it is spoken in love. And that's just pride disguised in righteous clothing. But sometimes we do sin against one another as we serve one another with our gifts. Sometimes we sin unintentionally. So be aware, be thoughtful, be considerate, but don't be sensitive. And here's what I mean by that. So many times I've heard people, the ones who get easily offended, they say, I'm just a sensitive person. No, you're a very unloving person. That doesn't excuse the person who sinned against you, but you need to biblically define what you're going through. Can you imagine if our Heavenly Father was also sensitive in that sense? If He was easily provoked by our sin? You know, any Christian who looks at his own sinful heart daily and battles against his flesh responds in a loving way when sinned against. This doesn't mean that there are no good and godly reasons to be angry, but it does mean that there is a difference when a loving heart responds to being sinned against and an unloving heart responds to being sinned against. And chief among those responses is our readiness to forgive others when sinned against. Which is why Paul says, love is not, what? Resentful. It's not resentful. It doesn't keep score. It doesn't stew over hurts for years together. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. A couple of days ago, one of my friends told me about a professing Christian woman who said to him, I never forgive anyone. So, what do you do when sinned against? He asked her. And she said, I just burn bridges. I end relationships and I move on. I shudder to think what Jesus will say to her on that last day. You remember that story that Jesus told about the unforgiving servant? Matthew 18, 32-33. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? You don't want to hear that. You can only wonder whether this woman has ever tasted of the sweetness of God's gracious, forgiving love. Beloved, love is not resentful. It doesn't hold grudges. A loving disciple is able to resist resentfulness because he knows a love that we just sang about. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Brothers, what kind of love is this? It is a love that we have come to know in the face of Jesus Christ. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. Sisters, what kind of love is this? It is a love that we have come to know in the face of Jesus Christ. What riches of kindness He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Beloved, what kind of love is this? It is a love that we have come to know in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love is profoundly moral. The loving man speaks of what is right and wrong and takes the side of righteousness and the obedience of faith. He is courageous enough to say to someone, Brother, your counsel was not right. It was not in keeping 
with God's word. Friends, love should not be confused with niceness. Being loving doesn't mean you shrink back from the truth or shy away from defending what is true. Love does not rejoice in suing a brother. It does not tolerate incest. It gets very upset when the poor are mistreated and when partiality rears its ugly head. Love doesn't rejoice that my gift is superior to yours. It doesn't rejoice that it gets to eat food offered to idols while being completely uncaring about what effect that action will have on unbelievers or weaker believers. Love, according to the culture we live in, says tolerate everything, endorse everything, support everything, get behind everything, say no to nothing. How dare you say no to something, you unloving bigot? That's what our culture says. Boy, that came out loud and clear in 2020, didn't it? Love me like I want to be loved. No, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing or unrighteousness. It rejoices in the truth. And brothers and sisters, truth is not relative. It's not up for grabs. It has been revealed to us by the one who said, I am the truth. And he has shown us on the cross how he loved us by clearly defining unrighteousness, by condemning it in the flesh so that all who repent of their sins and turn to him may receive his righteousness through faith. This is the message that raises people from spiritual death and produces in them a love that is willing to give up rights, a love that is willing to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name, a love that is willing to carry the burden of others. Christian love is happy, very happy to look foolish in the eyes of the world. And Christian love produced by the Spirit can carry the weighty task of building up the body of Christ. Hence, Paul says in verse 7, love bears all things. It is tenacious. There is a tenacity about love. The loving person is a tenacious person. This word bears is very similar to the word endure. It doesn't easily quit on people. That's what it means. Love believes all things. Now, this doesn't mean that love is gullible. Oh, I believe everything. It doesn't mean that love is naive. Nor does it mean that it always thinks the best about everything and everyone. That's a common way of reading this. The word is all in the Greek. It doesn't mean all inclusive. But it suggests an absence of all limits. Believes all things. What it means is that love Always have faith. Always has faith. It hopes all things. It always has hope. Which is why, look at the next phrase. It does what? Endures all. One commentator writes, This is not about always trusting those around us who are often not worthy of such trust, but about trusting the one who calls us to love others and living out that love for others as a reflection of our trust in Him. This is not about hoping for the best in those around us. It is about maintaining the hope set before us by the one to whom we have entrusted our lives and our futures, and being empowered by that eschatological hope for our future to take the risk, to take the risk of loving those around us in the present. Friends, a loving disciple is always trusting in the message of Christ and Him crucified. A loving disciple always hopes in the glory to come when Christ will be revealed. And in the security, in the security of that sure future, is freed and empowered to love those He has been called to love. And it is because of its Christ-centered faith and hope Love, the loving person, 
endures till the very end. And this brings us to a, the third and final lesson. Lesson number three, the permanence and superiority of love. Look at verse eight. Love never ends. Love never ends. This means that love never fails. It never suffers ruin. It never comes to an end in that sense. And so the big question before us is why does Paul want these Corinthians to know this? I mean, how does this help them see spiritual gifts in a proper perspective? And the answer to that is found in verses 8 to 13. Love is superior to the gifts because unlike these spiritual gifts, love will last for all eternity. It will make the transition from this age to the next. Look at verses 8 to 13. As for prophecies, that's the gift, they will pass away. This is a phrase, again, that has eschatological significance, meaning that this gift will cease. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, another gift. It's talking about the gift of knowledge, closely related to tongues and prophecy. It will pass away. Why? Verse 9. For, that's the reason, this is why they'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. So, knowledge, gift of knowledge, gift of prophecy. We know in part, and we prophesy in part. This is a reference to those two gifts. If the gift of prophecy is the supernatural ability of the prophet to declare God's infallible word about the present or the future, then the gift of knowledge or the word of knowledge was a spirit-inspired teaching gift. And Paul says that these gifts, the revelation that we receive through these spiritual gifts are in part or partial. That doesn't mean that they are incorrect or fallible or mixed with error, but it means that we don't know comprehensively or exhaustively. We know partially. But when the perfect comes, that's the future, the partial now will pass away. Friends, this is about apprehending God's revelation versus comprehending God's revelation. We know this is what he means because of verse 12. Look down at verse 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. So, what does this perfect mean? Well, to help us understand, to help us understand what perfect means, Paul gives us two analogies. Here's the first, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a chi child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What's the point? Well, a child knows and understands like a child. A grown-up understands better and more fully. There's a progress towards maturity. Second analogy, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly. Now, keep in mind, in those days, mirrors were made of polished brass. So if you're looking at your face in a brass plate, you get the idea of how clearly you might see yourself. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So I can see, but not fully, but then face to face more clearly. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, and here's the comparison, very important, even as I have been fully known. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Known by whom? By God. Our knowledge then, when the perfect comes, will be somewhat comparable to God's knowledge of us. And this helps us understand what the perfect means. The perfect refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will usher in the fullness of the age to come. The new creation in all its glory when we will be fully transformed, glorified, free from sin. And get this, qualitatively, our knowing will be superior. That doesn't mean we will be omniscient like God. But it does mean that we will not need to receive revelation through spiritual gifts. 
we will see Christ himself. We will see his face. We will know him more fully. But did you notice all the nows and the thens in the passage? The now refers to this age and the then refers to the fullness of the age to come. This age is that childhood phase in which the partial operates when the gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge are given. The age of manhood is the fullness of the age to come, the perfect. This age is when God's revelation is communicated to us indirectly through these spiritual gifts. This is the time when we see through that mirror dimly, indistinctly, obscurely somewhat. Then we will see face to face. As one author put it so eloquently, gone as it were will be the love letter and the photographs and the messages, for then the bride and the husband will be together. Isn't that beautiful? Friends, I hope you can see what Paul is doing here. He is contrasting the eternal nature of love and the temporary nature of these spiritual sign gifts that will come to an end. And this is why love is necessary and superior, which is why Paul concludes in verse 13. Look at his conclusion. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, meaning they remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest because love is eternal. It is our destiny. This is why Paul says the aim of all sound doctrine, the aim of all teaching is what? Love. 1 Timothy 1.5. Now, there is a sense in which when the new creation comes, our faith will be turned to sight. We know that. Our hope will be realized. But there's also another sense in which we will always trust in the Lord forever. We will always hope in Him. And yet we know it will be qualitatively different. But love is the greatest, not only because it is eternal, but also because it is the goal of our faith and hope in Jesus. Heaven, as Jonathan Edwards put it, will be a world of love. But then we will not struggle to love one another as we do today. Because we will be free from the very presence of sin. Fully transformed by His love. Friends, there is nothing more powerful and transforming than the power of God's love made available to us by His Spirit. There's also nothing more important and necessary than our love for one another. This is what marks us out as disciples of Jesus. And so to, how do we appropriate this so that our faith works, so that it produces the fruit of love? By trusting in the gospel. By turning our hearts and minds to that message of Christ and crucified. God the Holy Spirit empowers us to love as we behold the glory of Christ crucified revealed to us in His written Word. This is what we ought to study and give ourselves to. Friends, there is only one person who perfectly loved like this. And that is Jesus. Jesus said that the entire law can be summed up in love. Love for God and love for one another. And Christ perfectly kept the law in our place so that we who trust in Him can truly love one another by His Spirit. And this is why without love, our gifts amount to nothing. You see, our value is not measured by our spiritual gifts, but by love that God Himself has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Beloved, love is about delighting. It is about delighting in one another and it reflects the glory of the God who is love. We are His redeeming children. And this is why we ought to pursue love. This is why we ought to grow in love and make it our driving motivation as we use our God-given gifts to build up the body. And we can only do that. We can only do that if we keep the message of Christ and Him crucified central to all that we do. This is the excellent way. This is the excellent way. And this way, the world knows nothing about this way. The world knows nothing of this kind of love. 
So may the Lord bless us so that we might glory in the love of Christ and abound in our love for one another. Let's pray together. Father, we marvel at our Savior's love for sinners like us. Teach us, O Lord. Work in us by your power as we look upon the truths of Christ's love for his sheep that you have revealed to us in your word. Help us, O Lord, to love one another just as he loved us. Teach us to flee anything that would quench our love for Christ. Take away our love for sin so that we might love well and with great zeal build up your church. Strengthen our faith and fill us with hope that we might abide and abound in love. In Christ's name we pray.